Welcome to Exagility. I'm your host, John Coleman. Indy Young, welcome to the Exigility podcast. Thank you, thank you. So Indy, I'm really curious about your work. I trained someone recently, he was actually at NASA, and he told me about your work in the problem space, which made me really curious. And it reminds me actually of a gentleman I used to work with, Hayden Shockley, he died a year ago, and he used to give out about canvases, that uh, often you have a lean canvas or a business model canvas or whatever, that people, what they do is they go down the funnel. Okay, they're not going straight to solutions, but they kind of are because they already have, this is the problem and there's a kind of a particular aperture. They're looking at the problem through kind of thing. And yeah. so maybe really curious. I'd love to know how you discovered this problem space yourself, Indy. Yeah, it is a slippery slide. One of the ways that human brains work is that we're really good at recognizing patterns and immediately acting on them. There's a combination, those two things together, recognizing patterns and acting on them. And so we can't stop ourselves from, oh, look, this user is having a difficulty with this. And so we're going to fix it this way without sort of thinking it through. So I got my degree in computer science. I was a software engineer in the beginning, right when graphic user interfaces were starting to come out. It was before user experience. It was before usability. It was before any of that. And pretty much we were doing the transition between writing software for the engineers and other scientists, making a, a standard operating procedure in code. We were starting to transition to writing software for other people. Now by software these days, I also mean the services that are attached, the products that come out of it, that whole gestalt of what is going on when we're creating things to help support others. And I'm going to do a little side note right here is that I just said to help support others. A lot of the companies out there are not actually trying to support others. They are trying to get engagement. They're trying to get people to a place so they can serve them ads. That is not supporting people. Yeah, you might be attracting them with some great ways to waste their time, but it's not helping them achieve a particular purpose. Or maybe it's helping them achieve a purpose, but it's disintermediated through these ads. I really am interested in helping organizations support others. I've worked with several government agencies in the UK, in the US. I worked with a bunch of people in India who are working in civic design as well. So this is the mindset is like, let's not exploit people. Let's actually help them get something done. But what is that something? So far, we've only defined it by our solutions. We've only defined the something someone is trying to get done by how they might use our solution to get it done or our combinations of our solutions to get it done. And we haven't looked at that human being in their own context, trying to accomplish their own purpose, which is a lot broader than just your solution. So one example that I like to give 
of a purpose. And the, the purpose is actually the hinge point of getting to the problem space. So I'm going to talk about purpose first, and then I'm going to talk about problem space, strategy space, and solution space. So the purpose, one example I'd like to use is maybe I'm a person who has the purpose of wanting to grow my own vegetables. Okay. The action of growing my own vegetables might be trying to choose what to grow, trying to figure out what the kids want to eat, seeing if the kids would help me in the garden. Maybe I don't have kids. Maybe it's more about growing stuff so the neighbors could have it as well because the neighbors are elderly. Maybe it's about figuring out what bugs are eating up my chard <laughs> so I can't eat it. So I might, with those bugs, I might go down to the local nursery and say, hey, here's a stock of chard, what went wrong? And, and talk to a human being about it. Or I might try looking up YouTube videos about it. Or I might run over to my neighbor who does have a vegetable garden and go, hey, what happened? Oh, I know what that is. All of that the, the talking to the person at the nursery or talking to the neighbor, that's a social solution. That's a solution. I might remember something that I took a class in the university. And so I'll remember, oh yeah, there was these kinds of bugs and this kind of larval state or something. So that is memory, a solution, that kind of thing. I might be using mechanical tools like shovels. Actually, that would be manual tools or mechanical might be a rototiller. And yeah, I might use a digital tool like YouTube. Oh, I might use Spotify to keep my ears busy while I'm weeding. I might use my phone to have a conversation with my mom to distract myself. I'm weeding this garden. There's a lot of stuff going on in this purpose. And so part of the thing when you're checking what purpose are we going to need knowledge about so that we can support this person, when you create knowledge, you generally are doing research, not always, but research is knowledge creation. When you're running an organization, you need knowledge to make same decisions so that your organization is going to be around in another 10 years and so that your employees are still going to be happy working there in another 10 years so that the people who you are supporting are going to reach for your tool in and amongst all those other tools. So the problem space is really all about thinking of that person in the vegetable garden. Maybe we might scope it down to say, well, they're doing it because of dietary concerns, or maybe they're doing it because of carbon footprint concerns. So we might scope it down that way, where we say the purpose is I'm trying to just grow my own food so that I have a lower carbon footprint, or we might expand it out and say, Hey, I want a lower food carbon footprint. Part of it is going to the local farmer's market where people from around the town or the village are coming in with their produce and it hasn't gone in an airplane or in a boat and, and had a big carbon footprint. In which case that's expanding it. I might also be growing a garden, but it's expanding it in a different direction. So you can see the, the purpose is something you can really shape. And the purpose is the thing that you as an organization is trying to support. Let's Take it back then to that person growing the vegetables. They reach for their tunes or their phone to talk to mom while they're weeding, they're using the shovel. They might be going down to the nursery or to the neighbor to talk about the bugs or remembering larval stages. Remembering larval stages was something they learned in a class in university. 
the university is looking at that person only as a student whom they are trying to teach about larval stages. They are only looking at that person that way. They might have an inkling that person's gonna grow something, but they don't have an understanding of all the other tools that person might be using when they're facing the bugs. Okay, so the university is doing this. If I had a digital tool to help identify a bug, I'm looking at the person through my digital tool. How can they compare this bug to pictures or identify this bug and, and figure out what to do about it so that you can actually harvest your chard? So this is the trap that we're falling into. We're only looking at a person's purpose through the lens of our solution. The university is looking at that person as the student and the lens of the solution is teaching them to recognize larval stages of bugs. The app might be looking at the person through the lens of the app solution to help them identify the bug and figure out what to do about it. Okay. If we looked at that person in whole, we will actually find things that we can do in support of them that we had not thought of yet, that no one has thought of yet. We can connect the social aspects of it. Maybe people have thought of it. We can connect different ways that people have in terms of their approach. So we may think, oh, it's a vegetable gardener. I also grow vegetables. So I'm gonna design this app the way I grow vegetables. But lo and behold, people have different thinking styles when they go to grow their vegetables. They might have a thinking style that has to do with, hey, I'm going to be environmentally conscious. Or I might have a thinking style of, hey, I would like to grow food for everybody in my neighborhood. And so I need to be cost conscious or time consuming conscious. Maybe I'm working 60 hours a week and I only have one hour every weekend to work on the garden. So that's the approach. My thinking style is warping everything that I do in the vegetable garden around that. Yeah, it yeah. makes a lot of sense because recently I had over 200 students and I gave them a case study of hybrid learning because now People are going back to the campus and the university. And so when you go to the university, should you really be joining a Zoom or a Teams call when you come to the campus? And that's not really cool. So it's actually more complicated to make hybrid learning. Some people don't want to go back and things like that. What you're saying makes a lot of sense because some people, they did go open in terms of what the problem was to solve. And they didn't really put any constraints in themselves. In fact, they came up with some kind of weird and wonderful ideas. But the majority of people constrained their ideas based on what the university was already providing. And they were talking about how they were going to adapt those ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So going back to university, there are people who don't want to go back to university, but there's also people who can't, who could go to university because of remoteness. Like they're caring for their elderly parents. They have children. They don't have the time during the time that the class is being taught. Maybe they have a autoimmune disease, or maybe they're in a wheelchair or they're blind and it's harder to get to a physical space. There are a lot of ways that people bring themselves to the idea of learning that we hadn't been thinking of. And so we are actually doing a lot of harm. So there's the method that I use takes a step back, but then takes another step back. So we're not 
thinking about ideas. You said that's that slippery slide falling down the funnel, the pattern, and I want to fix it. The, I see the pattern, I want to fix it, that kind of thing. Yeah, we can step back and we can do some more discovery and try to understand things, but I want to be more specific about it. I want to be more intentional about understanding other people's ways of thinking without curating the knowledge based on my way of thinking, without letting my assumptions guide the way that I'm looking at it, without letting my bias guide the way that I'm coming up with solutions. I truly want to hear other people's ways of bringing themselves to this particular purpose. And that is how we're going to design more inclusive solutions. We're not taking the time to do this yet. So step back and step back. First of all, the idea making, right? The coming up with solutions, even examining a bunch of different ideas and discarding a few, an idea is the way you solve something. An idea is a solution. An idea is in the solution space. So even though there are a lot of methodologies who are like, let's have this little diamond in the front where we're just getting away from the solution, they're still doing it in a way that they're looking through their solution, like you said, and they're looking at trying to come up with ideas. They're doing generative research. They're trying to generate ideas. Okay. Generating ideas is in the solution space. When you're in the solution space, you refer to these people quite frequently as users or customers or members or passengers or students or faculty or whatever word you use, but you're using one noun to refer to a broad swath of humanity. What we're doing right now is we're like, oh, okay. And this happened in the last century, we need to leave it in the last century. We're like, okay, we're gonna use this market curve. It's got, it's a bell curve in the top part where most people are that we can serve in the market. That's who we're gonna build for. And we're gonna ignore those people in the low parts of the curve. And I say that is a false idea. That is a false way of thinking about humanity because there is no such thing as average. There's no such thing as an average way of approaching a purpose. And when you frame it by the purpose, you're like, oh, obviously I have a different way of approaching my vegetable garden than my grandmother did, than my neighbor did. Maybe there are patterns and I'm going to get to that in a minute, but what we need to do is not think of that bell curve. We need to flatten that bell curve because what's happening is that those people at the low parts are like, we're thinking there's low parts and there aren't, they're getting completely ignored. They have not been served. They are not supported. They are sometimes frequently forced to use a solution you've created and are being harmed by it. Think of all the enterprise software out there that's designed for one way of thinking. Question for you, Indy. So mm -hmm. I'm wondering, how do you know who to talk to? I'm guessing you need to talk to somebody, right? And I'm kind of wondering, how would you even know who you would talk to? Yeah, where does it start? Yeah, there's a bunch of stages. The very first stage is what is that purpose we're going to try to understand? We need to build knowledge about it. And we're not going to build knowledge about it once. We're going to build some knowledge about it through six more steps. At the other end of it, we're going to come up with an opportunity map. And the opportunity map is the point at which we finally get to go, oh, here are some insights, here are some gaps, here's where we're not supporting this thinking style in this part of the approach. That 
is the place that everybody wants to get to, but they're not taking all the six steps to actually create a valid foundation. They're doing it anecdotally. So one of the things is that a lot of leadership do not trust qualitative data. Quantitative data feels, since it's numeric, it's measuring things. I like numbers. I want to measure things so that I can make the right decision so that my business is around in another 10 years or 20 or 30 or 40 or, you know, 100. This is what I'm thinking about. Qualitative data can actually be measured. And in that opportunity map, what we do is we have the product owners measure how well in each, so uh, let me describe the opportunity map. It looks like a city skyline with a bunch of towers in it. And yeah. each of those towers is a different height. We don't care how high they are, just a different architects or whatever. But these, these towers contain windows and those windows contain the interior cognition, different people as they approach or address that purpose. Interior cognition is what makes up those towers the interior cognition when we're pulling it together which is one of these earlier six steps when we're pulling it together we're pulling it together based on focus of mental attention we're not pulling it together based on the way i think it should be we're not tagging it we're not doing analysis we're doing synthesis synthesis is incredibly different than analysis and analysis when you're doing it with transcripts and, and like interviews and stuff, this is where leadership goes like, well, one researcher could have different insights than another researcher from the same transcript. And that is true of analysis. Analysis has this sort of two-step part where you're mechanically going through and identifying things. And then it has another part where you're intuiting what these things mean. I don't do that. I do synthesis. Synthesis is me stepping back and saying, I don't want my thinking to affect other people's thinking. The way that I present this opportunity map for us to use, for our product managers to use, I don't want it to be my thinking. I want it to be other people's thinking so that we start to recognize the gaps where we are not supporting different ways that different people address the purpose. What does qualitative data look like to you what would be the inputs for that are you talking about unstructured interviews surveys what, uh, what are yeah. you what are you kind of talking about so the whole purpose of qualitative data is finding patterns you could have 100 pages of numbers and you could do qualitative analysis on it hmm. okay you could do qualitative synthesis on it maybe i do it with transcripts of listening sessions so let's go all the way back to the beginning what purpose are we going to study who has yeah. that purpose and who have we not heard from? Who are our typical, let's define who we thought we were serving and supporting and let's define the edge cases. I, I should not say edge case because <laughs> edge case does not apply to a person. Edge case applies to a process. So the word edge case, this is a trick of mine to get this word in here. When you hear the word edge case being applied to a person, that is also very false and actually demeaning. Yeah, not very inclusive. So, yeah, yeah, an edge case is meant to describe, here's the standard process. This is the way it works. And here are the edge case ways that it works in different contexts that we also have to encode. That's what an edge case is. 
It's mm. about a process. It is not about that bell curve of the people in our market, which also doesn't exist. So what we have is that flat line instead. We've got a yeah. bunch of people, but we can't make like 1 billion solutions, one for every person. That's mm. unsustainable. But mm. we can make more than one solution. And many organizations have made more than one solution. There is a happy medium in there. What I do is I go in there and I explore what is it that is going to allow us to get patterns to show up? So qualitative data, to your question, I use transcripts from listening sessions. Interviews could work if they're non-directed, but mm. what I want to do is understand another person's interior cognition. Generally, in interviews, what happens is that a person will tell the interviewer what they think the interviewer is after. And most of the time they will tell them explanations, how something works, how they did it, how it's supposed to happen. They'll tell them descriptions, they'll set the scene, they'll explain what tools they're using. They'll give their opinions about their tools or their preferences about different approaches. And that does not get to your interior cognition. So in the new book that I am publishing in the next few weeks, I'm using this new analogy of a jawbreaker candy. It's, you know, candy that has a bunch of layers. Yeah. Each topic that a person brings up in a listening session is a jawbreaker candy. Let me say something about topics first. When you are in a listening session, this book is all about how to listen, how to not direct somebody. You are not introducing topics. You are only introducing the purpose. And you're saying, hey, I know you have this purpose because when we were looking for you, you said you had this purpose. And I actually did an information session with you ahead of time where we talked about how much you've been thinking about this purpose. And so I'm going to start a listening session by saying, what went through your mind as you were addressing that purpose on those days that you were doing it? And so I'm interested in the purpose. They may start with explanations. They may start, I just did one, I helped somebody else out doing a, a study about the purpose of deciding whether to go to a restaurant during the latter half of 2020, COVID was going on. And so what went through your mind about it? How did you make that decision? The reason was we wanted to help restaurant owners support people better, okay? So that was set up for that. And we recruited people who had done a lot of thinking about it. Now, we start a listening session by saying what went through your mind as you were trying to decide whether to go to the restaurant when you told me you were deciding about it these six different times. So we're going to talk about those six different times. Some of it isn't going to be a restaurant. Some of it was actually deciding to go wine tasting or deciding to get together with friends and all the inner thinking, the interior cognition about, well, one woman was pregnant. Okay. I'm generally not a germaphobe. But now I have this different way of thinking that I have to like consciously pull in. And there was a lot of friction. So in the interior cognition, you have inner thinking, you have emotional reactions, and you have guiding principles that you use to help you make decisions. 
Okay. Guiding principles are not values. They're guiding principles like never force a friend, this particular friend to go with me on a day that they don't particularly want to go with me or something like that. So they're very personal guiding principles. And if we don't in an interview, get down to that level, if we stay at the exterior, let's say one of the topics is doing a drive-by of a restaurant in advance, the interior cognition in theirs, do they have a setup where I will feel safe. My way of feeling safe is that I can eat outside under a heat lamp and that the tables are spaced really far apart. And so I'm going to do a drive-by to try to see, maybe I have to get out of the car and walk by and see whether that's the setup there and whether I am happy with that. That's interior cognition. There's also some emotional reaction laced in there when you're walking by and that the tables are all really close together, even though they're outside. Okay, that doesn't feel good to me. I'm a little bit distrustful. Maybe I'm going to go by when people are all out there and I'm going to look and see if the servers have their masks on. And if people are masked up when they're not eating out there. One person was talking about the servers weren't even wearing the mask and she's, oh no, this like frisson of fear came up. These are the things we want. These are the things that we capture that we get into that opportunity map, into those towers of the opportunity map. We're doing synthesis. So it's a two-step stage, just like in analysis, there are two parts to it. This is two steps, but we don't get to the part where we have insights until we get to the end and we have all these towers and we then arrange our own solutions beneath those towers. We're forcing ourselves to look at our solutions through other people's perspective. So my understanding of the opportunity map was that you would, I'm guessing you're synthesizing what the thinking styles are from the conversations. That- yeah, that's actually a separate track entirely. So I'm synthesizing the different approaches and topics that people bring up. And when I synthesize it, I'm looking for patterns of focus of mental attention. So someone doing a drive-by of a restaurant, the focus of mental attention is, hey, will I feel safe there? Another person might have this, hey, I feel safe there by calling Or, hey, will I feel safe there by hearing from friends who went there last week? So all those are the same. It's the same topic. Now they might be describing outer exterior layers of that topic of, hey, will I feel safe there? They might be describing how they do it or what the process is. They might be saying, my opinion is that most restaurant owners are being safe, but that's not their interior cognition. And in a listening session, you will try to develop trust with that person and encourage them to talk about their interior cognition. You'll be paying rapt attention to the topics they're bringing up, but also having this background process going, are they speaking at the exterior layers of this jawbreaker of this particular topic, or have they gotten to the interior cognition? And if not, I need to get them to the interior cognition if I can. Otherwise, I have no data. Yeah. Yeah. So I noticed the word orality as well in one of your videos. I wonder if that's relevant to what you're talking about, because it came under the subject of deep listening, basically allowing for querying into depth. And you mentioned about it that could be spoken, could be signed, it could be drawn. 
Yes. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? I started out with that. Humans are, brains are really good at recognizing patterns and acting yeah. on them. Other thing human brains are really good at is communicating to one another. And mm -hmm. we have lots of ways of communicating to one another. It includes speaking, but it includes writing and it includes drawing. If you've ever been with somebody, they've whiteboarded out what they were trying to communicate to you or sign language or lip reading, or even just looking at facial expressions and, and trying to ask about what's going on or body movements or something. If you're actually in, in the room with the person or having a visual with them, if you're blind, you're not relying on that. You're relying on intonation of the voice. You're relying on some other things that are going on. You could even, if you went and saw a dance, those dancers are communicating to you. So humans are really good at communicating. <laughs> There's a lot of different ways to communicate. So when you're listening, you aren't just doing it audibly. You're doing it via these other channels. And when I reach out to people to see if they've done a lot of interior cognition about this purpose, I ask them, hey, how would you like to do the listening session? What's the way that you like to do this explaining of what went through your mind? Some people, we've done it by text on phones and it's taken days. Mm. Some people, we sit down together in person and they, they like get up and down and they, they're drawing things for me. Sometimes I just do it by phone. Once I did it by phone and the person was walking down the city streets and I'm all like, I would really appreciate it if you would sit down because you get so wrapped up in memory mode, in remembering what your interior cognition was in those past places where you were addressing your purpose that you forget and you cross the street when the light is red. I'm like, I want you to be safe. So could you please sit down, <laughs> right? Uh, or just okay. lean against the wall or something. Cause you get so wrapped up in this. These are very different than interviews. In an interview, a yeah. person is being led and here yeah, that person is doing the leading. Yeah. You had to love the expression. It was Sometimes we narrow the lens of the relationship to our, our solution. So you're trying to keep it really open. I'm really looking yeah. forward to the book because it sounds like a beautiful set of skills to be able to just get someone going and, and even being able to figure out what their purpose is beforehand. I'm sure it takes a lot of skill as well. The purpose is not figuring out per person. Because then we're going to get a bunch of data that's different from one another. And yeah, if we're going yeah. to operate on this, we need data that has patterns. Mm. So the purpose is figured out with your organization and you decide how big it's like, I told you it's an amoeba. You can make it like small and get really specific and clear about it or let it amoeba out in a different direction so that you can get ideas. I had one research study where we were trying to come up with ideas for the kitchen and I'm all like, okay. There's no way that we can talk to, because usually my set of people is between 12 and 20. I don't talk to a lot of them. I'm very specific mm. because I want the patterns to come out. Kitchen, we can't do that. We have to narrow it down. The purpose has to be narrower than that. So the purpose we used for that one was what went through your mind um, as you were cooking dinner while considering yourself a creative home chef. So we narrowed it and then we could find patterns across. I think we did a really small study, like 15 people for that one. I've got usually Nielsen Norman group will come up with a 
perennial article about how many people you need to include in the study. And they always have just one number. I have a calculation. It's based on how broad the purpose is. It's based on how many different thinking styles you already know are in there from your past work, or maybe you don't know and you have to go really broad. I've done studies where there's 40 or 50 people because we're groping around figuring out where to go. I do these kinds of studies with startups a lot because one of the things, if you make it broad enough, is that you've got this data. This data is valid for decades. Okay, this city skyline, this opportunity map, valid for decades. If your startup isn't doing so well, you can pivot by looking at the opportunity map and going in a different direction. So let's talk a little bit about the opportunity map, because I, I noticed yeah. a metaphor that you used, which was neighborhoods, blocks and towers. Yeah. So what for you would relate to a neighborhood and what would be the block and what would be the tower? To use a, an opportunity map, to have a city skyline, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be working with a few towers at once. We're generally not looking. These city skylines literally wrap around, if we printed them out, wrap around a conference room. Okay. They get quite large. I did one that was only about how you decided what to get for lunch. And that one wrapped around the conference room. <laughs> you would not think that such a purpose would be so <laughs> intense, but there's a lot of different thinking that goes into it. So you're going to be aligning your current solutions and the solutions you have in the, the hopper underneath the towers that they are trying to support. And one thing that you're going to notice is that the way that we define this solution, and it'll generally be a part of a solution, the way that we define this part of the solution is only addressing part of this tower that usually happens. I've never really done this exercise with organizations where we have existing solutions that completely address a tower. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's because there's different approaches in that tower that they just didn't think about. Maybe those are approaches that we don't care about, but generally they are. There are approaches that we just didn't think about that we can support. Sometimes it's the different thinking styles, but one of the things is that when I'm pulling the data together, since these things are so big, people are like, ah, <laughs> where do we start? I'm like, okay, we're going we're gonna to narrow it down to a certain neighborhood or a certain cluster of towers. You know, a city, when it it starts, I guess none of us have really been in the city when it starts. It's only where it is now. But if you can imagine, it starts as a certain cluster of buildings and then more buildings get built and more buildings get built. And eventually this is the sort of market district. And eventually that's the sort of business district where people are doing accounting. And, and there's the area where we're taking care of, you know, the horses or whatever. And then it grows and it grows. I am not applying a neighborhood to the data. The neighborhood is coming from the data. There are some people in the academic world who, who only like to do analysis, and, and that may work in certain cases. And they say, it's as if you're saying, this data exists already. And I am saying that. This data exists already. This is inner thinking, emotional reactions, and guiding principles from a certain set of people that we recruited to get us some new perspectives. And so there is data there that we need to let show itself. 
we need those patterns to show themselves. The way I show those patterns is by using this purpose, the same purpose for everybody in the study. We had to the study, there was this one airline that I did eight studies in a row for. We just kept adding because there were different, so many different aspects to look at. Deciding to take a flight and getting a reservation versus getting to the gate on time versus like boarding the plane and, and taking the flight. All these different aspects had very different thinking styles. I actually use that example, that set of data in my courses. And people who are learning how to do the synthesis, people who are learning how to create or derive the thinking styles that using the same data come up with the same answers, course after course. It's not exactly the same wording that they would use to describe the thinking styles, but it's the same thinking styles. So anyway, the eight studies in a row, they happened to do them over the course of, I think we did 18 months worth of work together. Ordinarily, an organization would add to their opportunity map after they've reached a certain point where they want more. That could be after a year, it could be after five years. After they've reached a certain point where they're like, okay, we've mined what we've got. We're supporting more people. We're doing a help harm graph. We're showing our product managers, like here's measuring how well we're supporting this tower this quarter. Here's measuring it after we made some changes the next quarter. Here's measuring it three quarters on after we did some bigger changes. And we're seeing if we're moving the dial up out of the harmful area into like we're helping more of the people. So there are two aspects to it then. Is it about reducing harm, but is it also about addressing unmet needs as well, Indy? Is that where you're going? Yeah, okay. and there's going to yeah. be neighborhoods in the data that we gather where maybe we made that purpose pretty elongated and we're like, ah, no, we're just not going to go that direction with this org. Or maybe it's one of the startups and they're like, let's keep that for future if we need it. I also saw in one of your talks, uh, you mentioned that you'd like to intentionally include people who are ignored. Was that mm -hmm. about the bell curve that you were talking about earlier uh, where people eliminate yeah. the edge cases? Okay. Yeah. And, and it's also in recruiting. So I do recruit intentionally to make sure that I'm getting different perspective, different inner interior cognition. And I talk about that in the book a little bit. I have a course where I ask people to bring their own study and I help people in the course frame their study. I also do that as coaching on a one-off basis, but the picking of the people, the recruiting in a different way than just going, oh, let's hire a market recruiting firm and just get people from their database. That's how we're getting different perspectives. The people in the market recruiting database are not the people that we're after necessarily. Yeah, because that's like milking the cow we already have, isn't it? Rather than yeah. finding the next creature. And yeah. I, I also noticed as well, I think I saw in a visual that the problem space piece would be done once a year. The strategy would be uh, continually reviewing the opportunity maps, I'm guessing. Right. And the opportunity backlog. Yes. And then that would feed what would be typically the discover to delivery yes. Uh, lean, agile type stuff that kind of goes on. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. I wouldn't say it. you have to do it once a year. I, I'm saying yeah. do it when you're ready to find some new knowledge. Okay. Yeah. In terms of case studies or results, what, what have you seen? You've been doing this for a long while, right? You don't need to name specific examples, maybe industries or like what kind of 
cases that you see where you did your opportunity map, then you, you decided some kind of intervention based on some insights you gathered from that. And then we can still get it wrong, can't we? Some of those ideas still yeah. might get weeded out. But ultimately, what kind of benefits have you seen so far? The biggest benefits have been, like there, there's an example with a, a bank. The biggest benefits have been clarity have been direction, internal strategy, every different, like the software architecture and the data design, people are seeing what we're doing at the front end, just in terms of that opportunity map. They're seeing what we're trying to do to support people and designing differently. I'm telling that particular bank story. There was also the person who was writing the content for the interactions. By using this opportunity map, by having all the teams come together and be able to see this, people are like, oh, obviously we're doing this and then we're going to have a different set of data or a different way of speaking to this different thinking style. So the idea is that in the end, we don't have one solution that is supposed to fit everybody. Oftentimes we'll get these big monolith solutions out there and they're customizable, but a very small percentage of people customize who has the time to figure out that customization. And so we're using tools in a very hackneyed way. Instead, what we're doing is we're saying, here's the solution we have for this type of thinking style. And here's the solution we have for this type of thinking style. And maybe we'll have a third one for another type of thinking style. And, and you can choose based on your approach. You can even switch based on your approach if it's not working for you. So that's what is coming out of this. Totally different thinking styles, different approaches even, different parts of the towers, different neighborhoods even, are going to come into play for those different thinking styles. Thinking styles can mix together in the same tower. They can also have their own neighborhoods. What's your situation? How are you approaching this? How have you approached it in the past? Now that we know that, we're going to say, hey, we recommend this particular part of our solution for you. For another person who answers differently, we might usher them in a different direction. And the nice thing is, is that, especially with digital and digital plus service, is that we've got a backend that's the same. So we're just designing new interactions, new yeah. tones of voice, new ways of speaking to people based on these different directions. It's almost like new packaging on the same thing, just hitting the target a bit more. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's more than packaging. It's more than skin deep. It, it is a different solution. Yeah, okay. It is different packaging. It's different wording, but it's also a different solution underneath. But the way that the solution functions, the code, the database, all of that are probably going to be fairly similar. You're going to use the same thing. You might have a couple of different tables for the different approaches. You might need to store different sets of data in there, but it's going to be mostly the same. Sounds really interesting. It's definitely convinced me this conversation about the idea of thinking styles, because I, one of the things that I do a lot is I work on personas, our proto-personas, our best guess at who the customer or user might be and what are their needs and what are their wants. And we, we phrase them as assumptions and we run hypotheses in to verify and we usually we find out we got the wrong needs or the wrong personas or something like that mm -hmm. this gives me a different lens to look at this yeah i can see how this could really help in practice does this mean that people who work with you they tend to use less personas and it's really more about thinking styles 
I'm going to put the caveat here that I don't care what word you use, Yeah. but I want you to use the right thing. So I don't care what packaging, some people need to use the word personas, but you can't put on it. Like some of the earliest personas that I ran into were at an investing company and they had three. And there was one that was like Steve, who was the intelligent one and the real go-getter investor who knew what he was doing. And then there were two other women who didn't know what the hell they were doing. And they were completely ignored. They never developed anything to help those two women who didn't know what they were doing. So it wasn't about interior cognition. It was about the demographics and the assumptions about the demographics. What I need is that to go away on the inside. It needs to be the interior cognition. Yeah. I don't care if you are eight or 48 or 78 or 98, you're going to have some interior cognition in there. And you might all share the same interior cognition and the same approach to whatever the purpose is that we're studying. I also noticed you're a bit worry about the words delight and engagement. You've already explained <laughs> engagement earlier, but I'd love to understand the delight, the reaction to that word. I'd love to understand that more in please. A lot of the tools that we use, especially enterprise software, is not delightful. The purpose is not delightful. Why should we describe it as delightful? So when you talk about a purpose, delight might be a part of it, like growing a vegetable garden. You might be delighted when you get to pick, I'm trying to think of the the British word for some of the vegetables, but in any case, I'll just use the American one. When you get to pick five eggplants or something and give a couple away to the neighbors, that would be delightful. But weeding Is weeding delightful? No. Having time doing something mindless might be slightly delightful, but weeding is not delightful. Figuring out what's wrong, what is this bug infestation? That's not delightful. So why are we using the word delight as a goal where we could be using the word support as a goal? And that leads to my final question for you. So I noticed that you had a comment as well about focusing on improvement, the success of it, achieving the purpose as opposed to growth. Can you just expand upon that, Andy, please? Yeah. So this idea of being a startup that's trying to really support like somebody with a particular medical condition, is growth really the key or is sustainability the key? A lot of startups only start their startup because they want to get bought by Google. (laughs) and make a lot of money and go retire to an island somewhere. Okay, that's a thing. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to run sustainable businesses. I'm trying to help people, support people. So instead of growth, let's measure our support. And if our support is solid, and if our support grows across to more of the people we've been ignoring, We're supporting more people. We're helping them accomplish their purpose in a way that matches the way that they think about their purpose. And that is what I'm after. Yeah. That sounds fabulous. Indy, I'm delighted that I was introduced to you. And thank you so much for coming on the Exigility podcast. Yeah, absolutely. It was my pleasure. And it was great to meet you. If you would like your voice message to be featured on a future podcast episode, uh, please leave a voice message at anchor.fm forward slash X agility forward slash message. That's anchor.fm forward slash X agility forward slash message. Thank you.